Well, this morning, I, I made a grand promise to you a few weeks ago, is that we would return to Genesis uh, at the new year. And so here we are. You know, we, we started Genesis back in September, and, and the goal was in the fall was to get through the first three chapters of Genesis. And, and some people would say, well, why don't we just preach through all of Genesis? I just go, because it took us like weeks to get through three chapters, so we're gonna, we gotta, we got to break it up. And so my, my, my goal was to get through all three chapters in the fall. We got close, about two sermons short, and my, my promise to you is that at the beginning of the year we would come back, and here we are in January. And so this morning I'm going to preach Genesis 3, chapters 14 through, sorry, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, and the next week, uh, verses 22 through 24. And we left off in the, in, in the beginning of the powerful Genesis chapter 3, which is uh, well known. Now, you may not know, like if I say Genesis 3, you go, I don't know Genesis 3. But when we start to talk about the things of Genesis 3, you go, oh, yeah, I, I know something about the story of Adam and Eve. And about the Adam and Eve and, and some sort of tree and, and Satan or the snake that, that he was there. And what we've been looking at, if you're just joining us, if we've been looking at it in Genesis 1 and 2, is this idea that God has created everything. That God spoke and it was. He said it and it was. God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. And he starts, he starts telling the story and he starts, he, starts, he starts crafting and creating and then filling. Crafting, creating, filling. Creates the heavens, fills the heavens. Creates the, wa- the earth, separates out the water from the land, fills and populates the water, fills and populates the land. And then it comes to humanity. And when he creates humanity, he, he reflects on humanity and says it's very good. Looks at the creation goes good, looks at humanity and goes very good. And then what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Because what God had said when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, of the garden you may eat freely. Go and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and you can eat freely of any of the trees, except for one tree. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree, you will die. That's it. And then Adam and Eve, like, yeah, you had one job, Adam and Eve, one job. And you failed at it. And so here we get in Genesis 3, God says, you can eat freely of any of the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. Genesis 3, Satan comes along and we see Eve there. And Satan says to Eve, he says, did, did God really say... You can't eat of any of these trees. All these great, wonderful trees, and you can't eat from any of them? And Eve actually corrects him. Eve actually says, no, 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 no. He said that we can eat of any of these trees, but we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we can't even touch of it. And in the day that we do, we will die. To which Satan responds, you won't die. Now, that's a bold claim. God says you will die. Satan says, you won't die. And really what Satan's saying in that claim is he's saying, God is lying to you. This God that you follow, he's lying to you. And the reason why he's lying to you is because he's withholding from you something greater. And that's what Satan says. He says, no, you're not going to die. The reason why God said don't eat of that tree is that he knows that if you eat of that tree that you will be just like him. 
That's the reason why he said don't do it. And so God is lying to you, and he's withholding from you something greater. And by the way, this is the lie that's still running around today. People will say God is, God is lying to you, and he's withholding from you something greater. People think that to follow God's word, to live according to God's word, is that you're limiting yourself in great, wonderful ways. I know a lot of Christians that think like that. Oh, I've got to limit myself in great, wonderful ways in order to be obedient to God's will. And I go, that's, that's the first lie. The first lie is that to be obedient to God is to limit yourself of these great, wonderful things. And so Eve, when she looks at the tree, it says that she, she saw that it was good for food. It would make her wise. And she desired it. You know, three really good reasons of why you should eat of that fruit. Looks good. It's good for food. I desire it. And it'll make me wise. Doesn't God want me to eat? It's good for food. Doesn't God want me to be wise? I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's, there's, the Bible talks about being wise, about the importance of the wise man. And this will make me wise. And it says that she desired it. Doesn't God want me to have the desires of my heart? Three really good reasons to eat of the fruit. One really, really, really good reason to not. God said, don't. And here what we see in in Genesis chapter 3 is we see the first time, we we see the first time where, where human wisdom trumps divine edict. Now, there's a lot of places in your life where human wisdom is trumping divine edict. And you probably couldn't trace the first time in your life where human wisdom trumped divine edict. But we can trace the first time it ever happened, and it comes back to Genesis 3. The first time that human wisdom trumped divine edict. Because what happens here is it's not, the, it's not this fruit in the sense of like there was some makeup about the fruit that did something, but the, the, the act of eating the fruit. And in the act of eating the fruit, what Eve is saying, that's the statement that she's making is, I'm going to be my own boss. I've got moral autonomy. I will decide what's best for me. And so I've taken, I've taken God's advice, don't eat. I've listened to what Satan has said. I listen to what I have to say, and then I make my decision. It's one of moral autonomy. That's why it's a rebellion, as we see here in Genesis 3, against God. That's the great sin. The great sin of the garden was, I'm going to be my own boss. And so she took it, and she gave it to her husband, who was there with them the whole time. Just watching. And I think, and I submitted to you back when I preached the sermon, I submitted to you, I think he's, he's, he's curious. What's going to happen? She's going to die? And then when she doesn't die as he perceives that she would die, he starts thinking to himself, maybe God is lying. Maybe God is withholding from me something greater. And so then he eats of it. And I, I submitted to you that I think, I think that Eve's sin was was active and that Adam's sin was passive and both both were going to be held into account now this is interesting because Eve's was active and Adam's was passive I just I don't know I, just, I gave it to him and I just I just ate and God holds both of those accountable and I think actually Adam's sin was that he what did he, he just watched 
He watched his wife walk right into rebellion with God, into harm's way, and said nothing because he wanted to see what would happen, the ultimate act of selfishness. And so they eat of the fruit. They're naked and ashamed, right? They realize we're naked. We are, we are naked, and now we have to cover up. And so what we see is that when they eat of the fruit, they get the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens is they lose intimacy and they gain shame. They lose their intimacy. We have to hide. We have to cover up now. And then they get shame, which is interesting because the, the loss of intimacy and the gaining of shame is the very thing that each and every one of us in this room is we're trying to gain the intimacy, that which we lost, and lose the shame, that which we gained. That's true of you. You want more intimate relationships where people know you. And you're trying to rid yourself of the shame. And you go, where does all that come from? I go, I'll tell you where it came from. We gained it here, and we lost it here, and now we're trying to reverse that. We're trying to, I want to lose that which I gained, and I'm trying to gain that which I lost. And so we see this then unfold. And it's interesting because God never says anything about this. What he said is that in the day you eat of this, you will die. He did not say in the day that you eat of this, you're going you're gonna to lose intimacy with one another and you're going to gain shame. He didn't say anything about that. You're right, he didn't. But the thing is, is that sin always has unintended consequences. See, we think we know the consequences of sin, so then we weigh that out and then we do it. But actually the problem is, is that sin always has unintended consequences and this is the truth here and so they do this and then god calls them into account he comes to them and 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 i said like the idea that he comes to them i think is the first act of grace that god would come into the garden first act of grace in the bible because you know he could have said come up to my come up to my throne room you guys you guys get up here right now and he could even come and say, you get over here right now. But he didn't. What does he do? He comes to them. He calls to them. Adam, where are you? What have you done? Who have you been listening to? Did you eat of that, tr- the, of that tree? Did you eat of that fruit of that tree, Adam? We see God. It's the wife that you gave me. She gave it to me. This, this helper who's not helping at all. Right? Eve. Eve. Satan. It was Satan. God, it was Satan. He's the one. And it's interesting that he doesn't call. He's going to address Satan, but he doesn't call on Satan. Because I think Satan does and did what Satan does and did. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, he did that. I expected that out of him. I didn't expect that out of you. And so, if verses, if we're looking at chapter three, if verses eight through thirteen, were the trial, right? Where I'm coming, where are you at? What have you done? Who have you talked to? If eight through thirteen is the trial, then I would say the verses that are following are are the the verdict and the, and then the sentencing. And what we're going to see this morning is 
is God with his justice and accountability. Now, we have this love-hate relationship with the love, it's a love-hate relationship with the, the justice and the accountability of God. If I were to say to you, do you, do you want all of the things that have happened to you, the people who have lied to you, the people who have stolen from you, the people who have harmed you, do you want God to hold them accountable? You would go, absolutely, yes. And if you need a list of ways in which you could do that, I have a list of ways in which you could hold them accountable, some things that would really hurt them. But then you say, but do you want God to hold you accountable of the ways in which you've hurt other people, the ways in which you've lied to them and stolen from them and wounded them? And to which we would say, well, no, 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 I mean, that, that no, no, because that's totally different. For that, I pray, I ask, I beg for God and his grace. And so we're in this weird place where we want, we want the accountability, the justice for the world. But we want the grace for us. And the beautiful thing about God is he's an equitable God. And he says, I'm going to give justice to all, and I'm going to give grace to all. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 3. We will start this morning in verse 14. This is the, the verdict and the sentencing. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Cursed are you, Satan. Above all livestock. Above all domesticated and undomesticated animals. You're going to be different than all of them. Now, I know for most of you, you guys probably put snakes in a different category, right? Like, I don't know, snakes are this, this weird, freaky, own category of things I never ever want to see ever in my life. He says, cursed are you above all domesticated and undomesticated animals. On your belly you shall go and eat dust. Moses, who is recording this, I don't think in this moment he's trying to explain why snakes don't have legs, right? Which is what some people would go, and this is in Susie, and this is why snakes don't have legs. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's not trying to explain to the world why snakes don't have legs. Because if you're going to apply that, like, oh, this is why, so snakes used to have legs, and then this happened, and then snakes didn't have legs anymore. I say, if you're going to, if you're going to say that, then you have to, you'd have to come up with the same thing to say, and Susie, this is why snakes eat dust. But snakes don't eat dust. And I don't think Moses, as he's recording this under the Spirit, I don't think he thinks that snakes eat dust. I think something else is happening here. I think that God is, is, is one, humiliating, humbling Satan because in his pride, he exalted himself. And God says, I'm going to humble you. And by humbling you, I'm going to physically make you lower than the rest of the animal kingdom. 
going to crawl on your belly. And not only is it going to humble you, but it's going to limit your mobility. In other words, Satan, you're limited. It's interesting because when I talk with people, sometimes people talk to me as if Satan is unlimited. You know, we, we, one of the things we say about God is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, all the time. There's nowhere that he isn't, which means that an omnipresent God can be with me when I'm somewhere else, and he can be with you as well at the same time. Why? Because he's omnipresent. But it's interesting, because he's not limited by, by, by space and time, but it's interesting that I think that a lot of people think that Satan's the same way. That Satan can tempt me at the same time he's tempting you and tempting this person and tempting someone else. Like, that he's, he's omnipresent like that. I go, but he's not. We actually find in Genesis 3 that he's limited and that God has control over him. Because he says, Satan, I'm going to limit you and limited you will be. Satan can't fight. He can't say, you can't, you can't limit me, God. God limits him, and so it is with the rest of creation. When God says it, it is so. That's how he proves his power. How he proves his power over Satan, I said it, and it was so. And so people are like, I think Satan's tempting me. And, you know, I, I, I get what's being said. But I think to me, it's, it's probably not Satan. You know, it's maybe, maybe it's one of his underlings, maybe. It's probably not him. I mean, he's probably worried with, like, Bigger fish, my other son is going to guess. Was this, as he should be, maybe, I don't know. But he's not omnipresent. He's limited. And then we see this limited here. He's humbled. That's what we see. I think, I think that's what he's getting at with the, you're going to go on your belly. You're going to be limited and humbled. You're going to eat the dust. You're humbled. And then there's this verse, that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, your defeat, Satan, is going to be certain, and I'm going to say it now. You know, many people think that this is the first time we get, we get the gospel in Genesis, in the Bible. As soon as creation falls, we get the first word in the proclamation of the gospel. There's going to be the restoration of all things. Satan falls, I say, the, 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 uh, Adam and Eve fall, and the first thing that God says to Satan is, your demise is coming and certain, for there is going to come one, and you will bruise his heel. In other words, you will harm him, but he is going to defeat you. There's going to be a battle, and you will, you will, you'll get him. But in the end, you will not conquer him. He will conquer you. And in Genesis, think about this, Genesis chapter 3, we begin to ask the question, who is this? Who is this, Steve? The answer that we're going to get in Matthew 1, which is Jesus, the answer that we get in Matthew 1 is first asked in Genesis 3. Who is this one? So Satan, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be limited. And you're going to be defeated. 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. 
And I want you to notice how he's actually going in reverse order, right? He showed up, Adam, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? Was it me? It was Eve. Eve, what did you do? It was me. It was Satan. And then he's going to address them with their consequences. Satan, I got you first. Now I'm going to move to Eve. Eve, Eve. It's going to be childbearing. You're going to have pain and childbearing and labor. And your desire is going to be to rule your husband. But your, your desires are going to oppose him. And he's going to rule over you. Two great relationships that should be the source of joy become relationships that are going to be the source of pain and work, of difficulty. It's interesting because I think a lot of times what we think about God when we do something, like God, 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 God addresses us in a totally unrelated way. Like, you know, we, uh, we steal some money and God's like, um, I don't know, I don't know. Um, we got a swarm of locusts sitting around here somewhere. Yeah, send the locusts his way. That's not how God works. When, 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 God, when God comes to us, it's much more corrective than it is punitive. He's not just trying to create pain for us and to punish us. What he's trying to do is correct us. And so it's interesting that he would come to Eve and say, Eve, the bearing of children is going to come at great pain. There have been many of women who have cursed Eve during labor. Right? Eve! How dare you? This is what I think is interesting here. What was one of the things that God told Adam and Eve to go and do? Multiply. And now God is saying, multiplying, to, in order to carry out my will, is now going to come with great struggle and great pain. You, I, I, he's, not, he's saying, oh, you know what, don't fill the world. He said, no, 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 the commandment is still to fill the world. But now in order to carry that out, it's going to come at the, gross, the cost of great pain and great struggle. And I know lots of women, and not just, by the way, not just in labor, when they think about ch- the, even the idea of childbearing. And I'm talking about not just give, like, giving birth, but even becoming pregnant. Health during pregnancy. Giving birth raising of children what used to be just natural all of a sudden now is coming at a cost of great pain and great struggle oh if this was just limited to the labor room right but it's more than that and then he says your desires, and some of the translations don't always pull this out, but the, the idea is that your desires will, and the ESV says, your desires shall be for your husband. Actually, I think like if you look at it, when it really actually li- well, literally says, your desires will be against your husband's. In other words, your husband's desires are going to be different than yours. Wives, you ever thought to yourself, my husband's desires are so totally different than mine. Well, you can thank Eve for that too. <laughs> Eve! And so he says, this is interesting, your desires are going to be contrary to his. There's going to be conflict here. And 
he's going to, as it says here, um, he's going to rule over you. Now this is like, Josh, you can't say that. That's 2019. It's 2019 now. You can't say these sorts of things. I go, well, first of all, I'm not saying it, right? I'm just, I'm reading to you what is in the Bible. And it's been here for a very long time. But a couple of things I want to make aware to you. One, it does not say, and women, your desire will be for men, but men are going to rule over you. In other words, this is not, this is not just for, for the, all of the genders. So in other words, that all men rule over all women. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying in a very specific relationship with husbands and wives. Wives, your, your, your desire is going to be against your husbands, and he will rule over you. I, I, when I was talking with high school students, and then we come across passages like this, and we go, yeah, it's a very unique relationship. So ladies, I will submit to you, you had better select wisely. And if you think to yourself, I don't like where this guy's leading, then I would say, get out, go. Because what's happening is you're not going to like where he's leading. You're going to get married, and then God's going to say, I want you to follow him. And you're going to go, oh, no. But a lot of times you knew that before you got married. And so it's not all men over all women. But I think what is here is that God is saying, I want the husband to be the leader in the marriage. Now, God could say this and give no explanation. But I would like to submit an explanation to you this morning. So I'm going to say this by saying, like, God needs to give no explanation. He can just say, this is the way it is, and it would be so. But if we're looking at this idea that, that when, God, when God's coming down, he's not being punitive, he's being corrective, then I would say that, that leadership being, being bestowed upon the husband is not about oppressing Eve, but about engaging Adam. See, we think that, that the reason why God would say this is because, oh, he wants to oppress Eve. I, go, I don't think it's because he wants to oppress Eve. I don't think he's even doing this because he goes, because Eve can't lead. I think he's doing this because he doesn't want to oppress Eve, but what he wants to do is to engage Adam. And I go, well, what just happened? Well, Adam failed. And how did Adam fail? Adam just sat there passively watching his wife walk in disobedience to God and said nothing. And I think God comes along and says, I have a solution for that problem. I'm going to put on the, the husband the responsibility of leading. Not because Eve can't, and not because I want to oppress Eve, but what I have to have is I have to have Adam engaged. Remember, that was what I said earlier, that Eve's sin was active, and Adam's was passive. And God says, I know how to correct this problem. I'm going to engage Adam. I've got to engage Adam. And by placing the responsibility of the leadership and the marriage on the husband, it's to engage Adam. And what I have seen, now you you look at the marriages, you look at your marriage, you look at the other marriages that are around you, and you tell me if this is true or not. So I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to say this is true. I'm going to submit to you something that I see, and then you look at your own life and your, your relationship, and you tell me if you see the same thing. But I see something. 
as the wife becomes more active, is often the husband becomes more passive. And now we're talking about a generation of men that are passive. And I go, oh no. Not because men have to leave, but there's something that happens when the men become disengaged. And so in this, it's not punitive as it is corrective. God says, I'm going to I'm going to require in my law, in my kingdom, in my people, I'm going to require that the husband be engaged. And by the way. Leading does not mean then I get to tell everybody what to do. If you think that's what leading is, then it's a broken idea of leadership. When people come to me and they go, Josh, what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? I'll I'll tell you what it means to be a spiritual leader. It means to be a spiritual leader in your family. It means that you're the one initiating spiritual growth. In other words, you're the one saying, hey, I think we should pray. Hey, I think we should go to church. Hey, I think we should be generous over here. Or even in when there's a break in the relationship, it also means that you're the first one to forgive, to offer grace, to be kind, to be generous, to not be boastful, proud, or rude, to take the position of humility. That's what it means to lead. And there's an issue right now in our culture. Did you know that one of the best attended Sundays of the year is Mother's Day? Did you know that one of the least attended Sundays of the year is Father's Day? That tells me something. It's to tell you something. God says, I want you, Eve. You're going to have separate desires, but I have to have Adam engage. And so he's going to rule over you. So interestingly enough, God says, look at, look at this. This is very clear, I think. God says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And now, by the way, to do my will is going to come at a great cost of great, of great struggle and great pain. The other thing that he told Eve, right? I want you to be a helper to Adam. But guess what? Now that is going to come. That will, to, con- to, to carry out that will, is going to come with great pain and great struggle. And whenever you were a child and you heard maybe your siblings get in trouble, you thought, oh, they're getting it now. Until mom and dad says, now it's your turn. Verse 17. And he said, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In your pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And Adam, because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, husbands, let me be very clear on this. Don't get back into the car 
and say, what did you learn from the sermon this morning? Well, that I rule over you and don't have to listen to you. I took copious notes when he was preaching on that part. It's fairly clear. It says it right here. I mean, we can even quote the verse now. I, I, before, I just, before I just thought it, now I can actually quote the verse. Genesis 3.17. Ah, you know, me and those scriptures better than that, right? What he's saying here is that this idea of listening is that you obeyed. You had my voice, Adam, and you had the voice of Eve. In other words, you don't get off the hook just because I just, I don't know, she gave it to me, I ate it. Like, you knew. You knew. You knew what I said. And by listening to her, you were disobeying me. It wasn't that he listened to Eve, it was that, but in, by listening and obeying Eve, he was being disobedient to God, which he would say the same thing to Eve. To, to Eve. Eve, you listen to Satan. This is broken because you listened to Satan, you didn't listen to me. And he says, now the ground is going to be cursed because of you. Work is going to be, well, work. And do you see like what he said before? This idea of eat freely. Eat freely, and be, but, but, but because, because you have disobeyed me and you have abused your freedom, now you will no longer eat freely. Your eating, your work is going to come at a great cost. You used to work with the land. Now it's going to seem like you're working against the land. Like it's going to have thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow now, you're going to eat. And so... If you ever think to yourself, if you're going to work, maybe you're going to work tomorrow morning and you're thinking to yourself, I hate this job. You can say, thanks, Adam. Thank you. Because because of this and because of what happened in the garden, work has now become work. That's why when people talk about heaven as if heaven's going to be this place where we just relax, I go, no, no, there's work there. And oh, but it's work redeemed. It's work, it's everything is redeemed. And it's interesting because what did God tell Adam to go do? Go subdue the earth. And now he's saying in order to subdue the earth, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take the sweat of your brow. It's going to be working against you. In other words, now to complete the will of God, you are, it's going to come at a great pain and a great struggle. And so we see this with Adam and with Eve. Childbearing, marriage, work. A source of pain and a source of struggle. Childbearing, marriage, work. It takes a lot of work and it's hard. And it's interesting because there's something inside of us, especially with the two, especially, actually, well, actually all three, with childbearing, with, um, with marriage, and with work. It, we actually think they should come easily. And anytime they actually take hard work and it's a struggle and it's a pain, we think to ourselves, something is wrong. To which I would say, yes, something is wrong. But the way that we often answer that, right, Now let's go get a new marriage or I'll go 
get a new job. And sometimes it was well, the new job, but sometimes the new job, like you know, that, that might be helpful. But it, at some level, you go, there's something deeper and more broken that is inside of us. And so we should actually not be surprised when these places are great struggle and great pain, childbearing, having children, marriage, and work, things that should bring us joy and fulfillment, all of a sudden are great work, great struggle, great pain. And so what do we do? But you may think, Yes, preacher boy, tell us, what shall we do? It's interesting that when, when, God, when God calls Israel, remember there's, there's the, the, the Israelites are slaves down in Egypt, and God says to Moses, go get my people and bring them out. And they've been working hard, making straw. They were slaves, a slave nation. He brings them out into the wilderness. And one of the things he does in the wilderness, you know, he provides manna for them every day. I'm reestablishing you. And so you actually, you're, I'm going to feed you again. And you're going to eat every day. Now you're going to have to go out and collect it, but you're going to eat every day with manna. But what's more than that? You know when Jesus shows up on the scene? He feeds 4,000. He feeds 5,000. He's telling people that he is the bread of life. That he's feeding people. Come, come, come. Come and eat. Come eat. You go, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't say go out and work hard, work hard, and then come back, and then I'll feed you. He says, just come, come eat. And we even use that terminology when we talk about communion, that come to the table and eat. And all of a sudden, he's inviting us again into this place of that we eat freely. And then he says these, these things of like, like, come to me. You're tired? Work got you down? Yeah, yeah. Heavy laden? Burdened? Yep. Come to me and what? I'll give you rest. The thing that you lost in the garden, I've got. But my question to you is, why does he get to say that? To which you may respond, because he's God. And I would say, yes, but he's God in Genesis 3. Right? So why does he say it now? Why, Why does Jesus get to show up on the scene and say it when he could have said that in Genesis 3? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you. And if you would, turn with me now into your Bibles, into Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, says, verse 10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Skipping down to 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might, become, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so it says in, in, in Galatians, it says, everybody who breaks the law is cursed, which is what we see in Genesis 3. There was one law, don't eat of the tree, you ate of the tree, now you're cursed. And then as the law expands, so do the curses. You could read Deuteronomy. There's lots of like, curse be the man that does this, curse be the man that does this, curse be the man that does this, curse be the man that does this. And so when Jesus shows up and says, come to me, and once again, you will find the rest. Work will no longer be work because I will redefine it for you. Come to me and you will eat freely. He doesn't do that because he got a, like, all of a sudden he, he got to Matthew and was like, you know what? I've been pretty hard on these guys for, you know, 1,500 years, and I'm going to do things differently. No, that's not why he gets to say that. The reason why he gets to say it in Matthew and not in Genesis is because he becomes the curse. That's what it says. Not that he removed the curse or he took the curse away, but that he himself, this is what it says, that he himself became the curse. And we see the same thing that happens with Jesus and the curse that happened with Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve, to fulfill the will of God came with great pain and great struggle. Because of sin, the will of God came with great pain and great struggle. And then Jesus comes to become the curse to fulfill the will of God on the cross. That the God the Father would send the Son to become the curse on the cross. And we go, and all of a sudden, once again, we see the same thing. That the will of God comes now with because of sin. The will of God comes with great pain and great struggle. The journey to the cross and on the cross, the story of the cross, is filled with it being the will of God, but also filled with it being great pain and great struggle. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the curse. At the risk of stating the obvious, you will not find ultimate joy in your children, in your work, or in your job. Which is funny because we think that we will. Now, we're here Sunday morning and go, of course not, Josh. I know that's not the answer. Uh, but when you go to work tomorrow, when you think about your children or lack thereof, when you think about your marriage you keep on wanting it to give you the fulfillment and the joy that it will never give you. Because it was never designed to give you that. And it's funny because we'll bounce back and forth between these three things, right? Work's not going well. Well, maybe it's with my family, with my, my children. Then that doesn't go well. Well, maybe it's with the marriage. That doesn't go well. Then back to the work. And ultimately, we're just kind of ping-ponging 
pinballing between these three things, trying to find the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate joy, when really it lies in Jesus. He became the curse. And, and with that, removed the curse off of us. And Jesus did not remove the curse so that we could ultimately find fulfillment and joy in our marriage. He didn't remove the curse so we can ultimately find joy and fulfillment in our children. And he did not remove the curse in order that we might find ultimate joy and fulfillment in our jobs. He did all of that so that we could fulfill his will, but find ultimate fulfillment and joy in him. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for becoming the curse. Taking on our sin and unrighteousness so that you may grant righteousness to us. You credited to us that which we did not deserve. And so we thank you. I pray in this, even as we're talking this morning about children and about marriage and about work i pray for for those areas right now as even people think i'm struggling in that i'm i've got pain with that as we all do i pray that you would heal that but more than that i i thank you by your grace that we don't find our ultimate fulfillment and joy in those things that Adam and Eve didn't find their ultimate joy and fulfillment in their marriage, in the children, in their work, but they found their ultimate joy and fulfillment in you, in a a proper relationship with you. And they mourned the loss of that. And their marriage and their, their children and their works were just the shrapnel of that. May we find our ultimate joy and fulfillment in you, Jesus, because you have become the curse that was due to us. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.